0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you for this time that we have together now. And bless us, I pray, as we work and as we study together. Help us in all that we do to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for whose precious name's sake we ask it. Amen. Right, First Timothy chapter two, uh, and uh, for those of you who followed uh, following my outline. We're talking basically on the theme of the the mediator and the mission. So that's the overall uh, picture. Uh, But I'm going to look at it verse by verse and and subject by subject uh, as we go through these 15 verses. Paul talking to Timothy. After introducing the subject and his writing to the church at Ephesus, now he's giving Timothy advice as to how to manage the congregation, what to do. Uh, in his, come on in, how to do uh, the work that has been uh, set aside for him. And so he says, first of all then, that this is the starting point, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, he begins with prayer. Now, notice that there are four words here that are used, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Apart from thanksgivings, which is a a clear translation of what is meant, the other three words, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, are really just words that have been chosen uh, because you've got to have different words meaning prayer. It's very hard to say how they differ from each other and what exactly is going on, but if we look at the the bigger picture here, I think first of all, the important thing. Hi, Sherry, come on in. Uh, the important thing is, Thanksgiving is where you begin actually, it's giving thanks for other people, giving thanks for other people, and and we'll look at this, and then praying for them, supplications and intercessions. And the key here is that it should be made for all people. Now, to understand what Paul is saying in this chapter, we have to realize uh, that he's a Jewish person writing to people, many of whom have a Jewish background. And the essence of this, of course, from their their, their background and, and upbringing and so on, is that you don't, in fact, pray for all people. Um, I mean, nowadays different, but in those days, the Jewish people, of course, were set apart. They were different from the uh, from the world around them. They kept to themselves. They were unpopular for this reason. Uh, you know, they didn't associate with other people. They didn't eat with them. They couldn't eat with them uh, because of their food laws and and uh, purity and so on. And right through the New Testament, we see this time and time again. Uh, problems arise. Uh, because Jewish people, especially Jewish people who became Christians, could not w- or would not associate freely with those who were not Jewish. And they had to be taught, they had to be trained to accept non-Jewish people, Gentiles as they, we call them, in the life of the church as equals. Uh, I mean, there were Gentiles in the synagogues sometimes. They were called God-fearers. Uh, And they did go. I mean, there were were, were these people, but they sat at the back and were basically told to be quiet. Uh, (laughs) You know, they uh, they they were they were adherents, if you like. They were um, uh, fringe. Uh, people in the, in, they weren't members, they weren't regarded as Jewish people, they didn't submit to the law of Moses in that way. And so, uh, although they were tolerated, they weren't particularly welcomed in as equals in the church, but in the synagogue. But of course, the whole point of the church was that the church is opening up to them. And so, when Paul says that thanksgiving is to be made for all people, he doesn't mean uh, that you go through all seven billion people who live on the planet uh, and pray for them. I mean, thats it's not thinking like that. He's thinking in terms of you pray for Jewish people whom you would pray for anyway uh, and you pray for Gentile people, people who are not Jewish, because they also are children of God. They also uh, are part of the created order and they deserve our prayers. And then he says, he he, he specifies, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, I don't know whether (laughs) you've thought about this, probably haven't. But uh, just think about this for a minute. For kings, who is he talking about? Because if you stop and think for a minute, uh, Paul and Timothy lived in the Roman Empire. There were no kings uh, there had been uh, what we call client kings, puppet rulers, uh, you know, like Herod, for example. But by the time that that uh, Paul was writing this, um, most of them had disappeared. there weren't really kings, and there certainly weren't kings in Ephesus where uh, where Timothy was. So who were they supposed to be praying for? Why would Paul say this? Well, here, of course, we ha- we have a problem of translation because. The word that is used in the Greek uh, behind this is the word for kings, yes, but it was also used uh, for uh, what we would today call emperors, you see, so what, the, 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 it would be a better translation uh, that we should pray for emperors and all who are in high positions. Um, It's difficult, you see, to know uh, uh, here. That's just a detail I know. For us today, of course, it doesn't really make any difference uh, because the principle is that we pray for the secular rulers of our society. Now, this is, again, you have to remember uh, that they were living in the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire was not a democracy. You didn't get to vote, uh, you know, for who was going to be emperor. Um, I mean, technically, this is rather strange, Tem- te- technically, the, the, the emperors were, in fact, elected. Uh, they were elected by the Roman Senate. Uh, but the Roman Senate was not like the American Senate. Uh, you know, it was... Well, I would say it was packed by, uh, you know, people who were uh, supporters of the regime. Not that that would ever happen here. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, uh, but there but wasn't really a popular element to this. I mean, it was an aristocracy. It was, be, it was sort of in crowd uh, that was in charge. And, of course, the emperors got away with murder, quite literally. Um, the emperor at this time, Nero, was a, a specialist in that field you know, um, the, be- the best you can say for him is that he was an equal opportunities executioner. Um, you know, He didn't really care who he put to death, uh, no discrimination there, um, uh, but if you were on the receiving end, uh, that, that probably wasn't a point very much in his favor, uh, <laughs> you might say. But, but they were asked to pray for these people. So this is the key thing. Romans 13, is, uh, reflects, well, Romans chapter 13 says pretty much the same thing. That in spite of this, you see, in spite of the fact that the government was by no means ideal, uh, nevertheless, uh, Paul I- insists that the church should pray for the rulers people in high positions. Why? Because they are people who have responsibilities for the civil government of the state. And a peaceable state, a peaceable civil government is important for all of us because it is uh, the the context in which we are called to function. If we lived in a constant state of uncertainty, uh, of a kind of uh, civil war sort of bubbling up underneath, or, or you know instability, which you get in some places, um, the church would not be free uh, uh, to operate. You'd be wondering all the time, um, you know, who is, uh, uh, what's going on. I mean, you, you know, you could be bombed out or, or something like that. This is what happens in some places. I mean I remember many years ago uh, I used to visit behind the Iron Curtain uh, visit Christians there and I remember one Sunday preaching uh, in a church in in what was then Czechoslovakia and uh, it was apparently free I mean I stood up and I said whatever I wanted to say Um, and uh, I was translated, of course, uh, into into Czech. Uh, but I was told afterwards uh, that there was a man in the congregation um, who was basically a government agent. Uh, I mean, he'd been sent to make sure that I didn't say anything, or well, he couldn't stop me, of course. But if I did say something that you know he didn't approve of, um, uh, I would get reported. No, I didn't know that. You see, and. Uh, how did I find out? Well, um, I'd studied Russian, so I'd, I suppose I can speak Russian. And Russian and Czech are closely related anyway, so I could understand a lot of the Czech anyway. But, um, you know, you're you preaching. And, and the pastor said, go and speak to so-and-so because he speaks Russian. You can talk to him in Russian. So that was the... That was the, the 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 trigger, you see. When somebody said, it, it, in the days of the Iron Curtain, if somebody said that to you, uh, so-and-so speaks Russian, what they really meant was, so-and-so is a government agent <laughs> who's here to spy on you. Uh, you know, that's the translation that you have to make. So I said, okay, good. So I did, I went and spoke to him, and, and he just beamed, you know. He just said, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. Went on about, you know, his wonderful youth in the Soviet Union, and I thought, oh, heavens, here we go. Um, <laughs> but uh, but nevertheless, you see, this was the situation, and you realize when something like this happens, that you know what a precious gift free civil society is. Now, you may not like the people who rule you, um, and, and so on. You may not vote for them. You may prefer somebody else. But believe me, the alternative is worse. Uh, and Uh, You know, we have to always bear that in mind. However, you know, we have the freedom to disagree (laughs) and the freedom to dislike people openly, um, not just privately. And Paul and and Timothy didn't have that freedom. You know, they, they, they didn't live in that kind of society. But they said, well, you know, nevertheless, we must do this and we must remember this. You see, that there is a place for this kind of thing. And why, is so it that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, people didn't have to be afraid. People didn't have to, uh, uh, you know... Uh, compromise themselves because of course that was the other thing Um, you know that if you're not sure who's in charge and what's going on um, what happens of course is you end up paying protection money uh, to people to leave you alone and of course the minute you start doing that um, you're involved in a network of corruption you know it's a kind of mafia Um, I mean this is what we said you see when the Soviet Union fell apart Uh, What happened was that the the Mafia, which was the Communist Party, uh, was privatized, basically. Uh, And now you have a society which is still run by the Mafia, but you just don't know who the Mafia are. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not identifiable in the same way. So, as far as I'm concerned, bring back communism because at least you knew who the enemy was. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it was pretty clear um, at that, that time. So, uh, so this is the thing. You see that the, the, to live in a peaceful way, and have a quiet life, and get on with the business that we have to do, because, of course. Uh, Our priorities are different. Our perspective is different. Um, We are not limited to this life or to this world. Uh, We are pilgrims and strangers on the earth. We are heading to a different destination. And we want to be as free as possible uh, to do that uh, and and to persuade other people to do that. And this is part of it. Paul says then, verse 3, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, of course, is realistic he's not pretending that the rulers, the secular rulers, are Christians or have any sympathy uh, with the Christian church. This is one of the problems I think that we have after two thousand years of Christianity uh, and living uh, through uh, a culture and a civilization which has been deeply influenced by our faith and by the church and so on we tend to think that our rulers ought to be Christians you know, somehow or other. We have that, that idea, you know, like uh, is the president a believer? And people ask this question as if it matters. Well, I suppose in one way it matters. I mean, it would be nice, it's, it's nice to know that this, uh, but we mustn't take this for granted. We mustn't assume, uh, that the secular rulers are necessarily sympathetic to what we're doing. Uh, we must always be on guard, uh, with, for people who, um, who will use this, you see, who will play the church to their advantage. Uh, and And make you think that they're on your side, whether they really are or not, because they're politicians, and that 's what politicians do um, so this is not the the uh, the issue here it 's a good thing to do in itself you see to 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 pray for these people and because god uh, or paul says that God desires all people to be saved now again uh, we, what does he mean by this? he means Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as well as Jewish people. You see, there's no discrimination in this way. He doesn't mean every single human being, necessarily, um, because, of course, uh, if he meant that, that you know, every single person uh, should be saved, well, who, God could not be stopped. I mean, you know, you, you, he is the creator. He could do, he could do that, uh, but he doesn't do that. Because people are free to accept or reject the message as they hear it. I mean, you're not, nobody's forced into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And I think this is an important thing to remember, um, because being forced into the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, is, you, don't, you don't want to go to heaven and find you're, you're, you're there with a whole lot of people who don't want to be there. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're only there because they've been pushed into it. Um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want that. So, it doesn't mean that. Uh, but And also to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, you see, this is the key. Uh, that to, to be saved uh, is to know the truth, to have the right A a right understanding of who we are of what we are and why we need salvation Uh, I mean a lot of people today don't understand this Um, if they believe in heaven which is an open question in a lot of cases um, they tend to think that there's some kind of entitlement Uh, you know that uh, people die and sort of say oh yeah well you know so and so he, he was a pain in the neck, uh, but you know, he's, he's gone to heaven, you can't really say anything else. Um, you may not want them to go to heaven, but that's, what, that's the nice thing to say, um, you know, whether you really believe in it or not. Uh, but this is not really the, the Paul's priority here, the priority is that you should come to know the truth. And, of course, the truth is that we are sinners, uh, that we are in desperate need of salvation, that that salvation has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul goes on to say. For there is one God, verse 5, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For there is one God. Obvious, you might think, to us, but not at all obvious, uh, in the ancient world, which was a, a society where most people were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. So the first thing you have to say, no, there's only one God. <coughs> now today, we tend to take this for granted, you know, monotheism. Uh, if, if you, if you are an atheist today, it means that you reject the God of the Bible. Uh, if you were an atheist in the time of, of Paul of Jesus, uh, it meant that you didn't worship the pagan gods. Christians were atheists for this reason. You see that they, the the public gods they didn't they didn't uh, appreciate. But today, as I say, on the whole, most people tend to accept the notion uh, that there is only one God. But uh, they also think that it doesn't really matter how you worship this one god. You know, uh, th- what sort of label you wear, what kind of rites you, you, you engage in. And, of course, there are religions like Hinduism, for example, um, which are polytheistic. They have lots of gods, uh, but people tend to sort of overlook this. Uh, you know and sort of say oh well that's their way of approaching the supreme reality and and so on you see and you often hear people talk about this um, as if being spiritual spirituality has replaced faith you know that uh, as long as you're spiritual it doesn't really matter how you're spiritual or uh, in what way and you can be a Buddhist or you can be a a Hindu or you could be a Muslim be anything you like Um, you know as, as long as you're kind of looking in this kind of slightly sort of spiritual kind of way. That's not what Paul is saying here. There is one God and the one God is the God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, and came into the world in Jesus Christ. That's the God that he wants to focus on. That's the God in whom we believe. And he goes on to say, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Again, saying it like that may not strike you as particularly odd uh, or strange, but let's have a, a look at this for a minute. What is a mediator? In human life, a mediator is somebody who stands between opposing parties. You know? Um, very often, uh, husband and wife in the divorce court or something like that, you know, you have a mediator who tries to sort of see both sides of the picture and, uh, and come to some kind of balanced conclusion. Uh, or companies, you know, someone who who tries to to make peace between people of different views, different uh, ideas and so on Um, maybe not satisfying either side totally but coming to a kind of compromise that both can live with Uh, and that's what a mediator is supposed to do, that's how we understand this uh, today. But of course in this context it isn't really like that, because uh, Jesus Christ is not a third party who stands between God and us. Uh, He's not somebody who's been brought in uh, as an extra, if you like, to solve a problem, you know that the human beings have have revolted against God. There's a there's a difficulty here. God is not happy with this. Um, and God has to punish this to, uh, punish us or wants to punish us because of this disobedience and so on. So the mediator comes in and says, "Well, uh, you know, um, and God has his point of view, and, uh, and and you human beings, you have your point of view. Let's see if we can, uh, you know." Uh, uh, make a compromise. That's not what the mediator uh, uh, was there to do. Some people thought that uh, you know, in the ancient world. Some people thought that the mediator was neither God nor man. You know, a, literally a third party. Maybe an angel or something like this. Someone who, um, who could connect with both parties without belonging to either. You see, without actually being either. But, but Jesus is a mediator in a completely different way. <laughs> because Jesus is a mediator who starts off as God. Uh, he is God, the Son of God. And you see this in Philippians chapter 2. And who becomes a man. And this is why, Paul stresses here, the man Christ Jesus. You see, it's not just God coming down from heaven or some kind of angel, some kind of spiritual being sent down from heaven to to connect us with God up there, but someone who actually becomes a man. Now, how can you be God and man at the same time? Well, this is the, the big problem, if you like, of Christian theology. How does this work? And the way it works is uh, that uh, you have to think in two concepts. You think, first of all, person. God is a person. Or the Son of God is a person. And then nature. See, what kind of nature have you got? And of course, the Son of God in eternity is a divine person, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, (coughs) who has a divine nature. He's eternal, immortal, etc., But in order to become our mediator, in order to become a man, he has to acquire a human nature, another nature. And this is what he does in the incarnation, as we call it, when he becomes a man in Jesus Christ. He remains the same person, but he takes on another nature, two natures a divine nature and a human nature why does he need a human nature? he needs a human nature because if he hasn't got one he cannot suffer and die for us God cannot suffer and die in his own divine nature so he has to acquire a human nature he has to become one of us in order to do this now you will say to yourself but isn't this weird how can you have one person with two different natures like this? well Um, the only thing that's odd about Jesus is that he had the two natures at the same time. Because, you see, you and I will also have two natures. Uh, You look at uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, From around verses 35 onwards, where Paul talks about uh, the dying and rising again, the resurrection. He says, "When we rise again, we will have a spiritual body." He said, "Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God." Uh, You know, we'll come back in the resurrection with a new body. Well, what's he saying? What he's saying, of course, is it will come back with a new nature. Uh, You know, our present human nature, uh, this nature, will die. Uh, and we will rise again uh, with something else you see some a, a new nature, but of course we'll still be the same persons. We have to be the same persons because if we 're not the same persons, then salvation doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you die and come back as somebody else, you know um, <laughs> I mean how could you possibly say you were saved? You just become somebody else. I mean, it's not reincarnation like this, Uh, you see. We stay the same persons, but we have one nature in this life, and we'll have a second nature, a different nature in the life to come. So this will happen to us in this particular way. So when we realize this, uh, it's perhaps not so strange uh, to think that, you see, God can do this, that he can come and have two natures. And we see this in Jesus, of course. You see, when Jesus is walking around uh, on earth, um, he is both God and man at the same time. And it's difficult to picture this, difficult to imagine this, but when you read the Gospels, you see on the one hand, uh, you see people didn't think Jesus was freakish. I mean, they didn't think he was some oddity, uh, you know, wandering around, some circus character, um, and indeed, when he went to preach in Nazareth, his hometown, and stood up and said who he was and what he'd come to do, he got chased out because people said, oh, who are you? You're not, who do you think you are? We know you. You're the son of Joseph and Mary. Get out of here. You know, you're, you, you, you've got heirs and pretensions that don't belong to you, um, kind of thing. So, uh, he wasn't a freak. He wasn't thought of in, in this way. But then, of course, every once in a while, Uh, you realize in the Gospels, uh, the divine nature of Jesus comes out. Uh, You know, he walks on water, for instance. Um, He spits on the ground, creates uh, mud, and puts it on somebody's eyes, and uh, and they're healed. Well, I won't ask for anybody to demonstrate this, but I think we can probably agree (laughs) that if you and I spat on the ground and put the mud in somebody else's eye, they wouldn't be healed. (laughs) Can we agree on that? don't think so <laughs> you know it would it would go the other way probably you know they they really would have to see a doctor we're more likely to blind somebody than we are to cure the blindness so these things come out now how is this possible how can you imagine this well I like to think uh, it's rather like somebody who has two nationalities By national, I don't mean passport, I mean ethnic origin. You see? Let's say you meet someone, and there are plenty of people like this around. Um, You know, let's say the father is is Hispanic or something. Uh, Just take that as an example. Let's say he's Mexican, mother is American. You know this person here. You've grown up with them here. Uh, As far as you're concerned, they're just like you. You know, they talk like you. They, 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 they have the same kind of interests and in everything else. They eat the same kind of food. But then every once in a while, the phone rings and its father on the line. And suddenly, this person that you think is totally like you uh, starts blabbing away in Spanish as if nothing has happened. And you say to yourself, how do you do that? You know, uh, I mean, how does a, bi- a perfectly bilingual person operate. Uh, I mean, what language do they dream in? Have you ever asked thought about this? Uh, you know, what, what do you think? Or what's your first uh, way, way of thinking like this? And if you ask a person like this, you see, you meet someone that say, well, you know, what language do you dream in? They don't know <laughs> usually. You know, they say, oh, I've never thought about that. Um, you know, and you sort of say, "Well, how do you switch from one to the other? sort of say, "Well, um, just do uh, you know do you not get confused well no um, you, you know it's what what is natural to them isn 't natural to us now, do you think to yourself, this person is peculiar? No uh, you know uh, there 's nothing particularly odd about them um, they're just doing this because that's the way they are. You see, they have a, a, a dual origin. And I think that we can think of Jesus in this way, you see. Thinking at one level of, as God, another level as man, and relating to us in one way, and we don't see anything any problem with this, but relating to his Father, of course, in a different way. Uh, you see, that every once in a while we get an awareness of, and we don't necessarily understand it, but we recognize that that's what's happening. So this is what I think Jesus was like, you see. And because he was like this, uh, as a sort of mediator, he could combine, he could put things together uh, in a way that we can't, you see. He could become sin for us, even though he knew no sin, because he was free to take this on. You and I are not free. I mean, if I offered to die for you, that might be very nice of me to do this, Um, but I couldn't really take your life and your uh, debts and everything else on myself because I've got my own to worry about. You know, I've got enough trouble. I don't need yours as well. <laughs> you know, and uh, and, and uh, it would it would kill me. I mean, I I just couldn't do that. you See, take on, but with Jesus, who doesn't have a debt to pay uh, himself, uh, you see, he can take this on himself. And this is the nature of his mediation uh, that he paid the price for you and for me. He didn't he didn't try to make some kind of deal with God. Um, you know, sort of bargain 50-50. Uh, no, he took on the whole thing, everything that's wrong with you and me, paid the price that was required, and said, right, you're acquitted now. You see, the, the debt is paid. It's, it's over and done with. You don't have to pay it yourself. It's paid for you. And this is what Paul says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, Jesus died not just for the Jewish people. Again, this is the context, you see. But for all, for, every pe- for everyone. And this is the testimony, uh, he says, which is given at the proper time. In other words, we don't know why Jesus came into the world at the time that he did. I mean, this is in the mind of God. We can't say for sure why this happened when it did. But when we look back at this, you can say, well, that in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people who previously had lived pretty much entirely in Palestine, sort of, you know, among themselves, had spread around the world. So uh, the Apostle Paul was born in Tarsus in, in, in Turkey. He was a, an, an emigrant, if you like, you see, spreading around the world. The Roman Empire had come bringing peace uh, to a, large, a wide area so that people could spread uh, there was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people together this was a good time to reveal that the salvation which is promised to Abraham is actually promised to the whole world from a human point of view we can kind of think well maybe that's what happened you know, maybe that's why God chose that particular time to do this we can't be sure of that Uh, but But whatever we know is that God's timing is always right. God chooses the right time. That was the time that he chose, and those were the circumstances in which this happened. And then Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now those of you who were here last week will remember that I talked about triads. Things come in threes. And here we go again, you see, preacher, apostle, teacher. Again, we have a problem with translation. The words being used here are are fine. I mean, you can say that, preacher, apostle, teacher, yes, that's that's possible. But the, the real meaning behind preacher, preacher is a herald. That's the real word. And I guess the translat- translators don't put that because heralds are kind of odd today. Uh, you know, you have this picture of sort of medieval somebody blowing a trumpet or whatever. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, unusual. Apostle really means missionary. Um, you know, rather than apostle, in the restricted sense that we use it today, uh, of the twelve apostles and so on. Teacher, that's pretty much the same. But these three go together, and they go together in this order. He was a herald, a preacher, if you like, a proclaimer. Why? Because he had a message to convey. That's the first thing. You see, he had this mission. This was his mission. Then he was an apostle. He was a missionary. The apostle just means somebody who was sent. You see, he he, he went. He didn't keep this to himself. He traveled around the world and saw this as his vocation. This is what he was supposed to do. And he was a teacher because it wasn't enough just to, to say what, you know, to preach this message. He had to explain what it meant. He had to teach what it meant. And if you look at Acts chapter 17 when Paul went to Athens and preached there, you discover what this means because he, he talked to the, the Greek philosophers in Athens. And they had no idea what he was saying, you know, they just didn't have a clue because they had no teaching, they had no background. You know, he was talking about resurrection. What on earth is that? You know, they didn't know. So teaching is necessary, not just proclaiming, but you have to communicate. You have to teach the message. Uh, and so these things, and he says, a teacher of the Gentiles, this is, this is the whole context, you see, non-Jewish people, in faith and truth. Put these two things together. Belief, yes, but it's not just any old belief. It's belief in the truth. See, uh, no point believing something that isn't true. Um, And so faith by itself is not enough. I mean, you can have a lot of faith in something, but it's entirely wrong. Uh, uh, You know, I mean, some people put their faith in crystal balls and things like this. uh, But it's not right. You have to have the faith. It has to be focused on what is right. Then he says, he goes on to the, we have to stop in a minute. uh, But he talks in the last few verses about individual groups within the church. First of all, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Well, Paul's putting his finger here, I think, on two characteristics of men and women. Uh, m- men have a way of fighting. I don't know why it is, but violence tends, tends to be a male thing. And, uh, you know, it can be it, it can be something that you actually fight, you know, high noon, noon, you're sort of pointing pistols at each other. Or it can just be an argument. That, you know, women know this, don't they? I mean, you, you think, oh, oh, can somebody go and sort those men out? You know, mm-hmm. they're just arguing about something. And... And the arguments that men have never mean anything. (laughs) You notice that? I mean, they're always fighting about something that doesn't really seem to matter, at least not to the women. And they sort of say, you know, can't they just knock their heads and say, why can't they get along? Um, You know, and and this is, I don't know why this is, but men seem to be like this. You know, two big egos in a small room. This is dangerous, Uh, you know, and men are this way. Women, on the other hand, of course, tend to worry about their appearance in a way that men don't. Now, I'm not blaming them for this, because sometimes it's men who are at fault. You know, they expect this for some reason. I don't know why, but they do. And I'll just tell you a little story about this. A couple of years ago, there was an experiment in Australia of two news presenters on a local TV station, a man and a woman, and they decided to wear the same outfit, same clothes, Uh, and see how long it took for somebody to notice. Well, the man wore the same suit and the same tie for an entire year and nobody said a word. The woman wore the same outfit for three days and people were calling the station saying, what's wrong with her? Doesn't she have anything to wear? Now, I mean, they did this as an experiment. You see. And I thought, well, you know, you can argue till the cows come home about this, but that's what happened. And, uh, and of course, you know, people notice these things. Why? I don't know. But they do. And, and women, you know, they have to be, be, be more careful about this kind of thing uh, than men do. I mean, uh, the, uh, the man got away with it for a year. <laughs> and and nobody said a word. So, um, you know, we we, we just have to face these things. I mean, it it may be wrong, it may be male chauvinist and all that, but but that's the way it is, and we have to, uh, uh, you know, not put barriers in other people's way. And then he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness and so on. These are difficult verses today, because, of course, we live in a time uh, when male-female equality is very important. But to the people that Paul was writing to, see, they, they would hear a sentence like this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. You and I hear this and say, well, what about the men? Weren't they supposed to be quiet and submissive too? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, it's not that they weren't supposed to do this as well. But we tend to think this is this is discrimination and, and so on. But to the first hearers of this, they would say, women learn you know, what do they need to learn for? You know, as far as they were concerned, barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, that was all that was necessary. And uh, in, in Jewish culture, women didn't learn. They were never taught anything. Uh, the boys were taught, uh, but the girls know, you see. So here Paul's saying, let the women learn. Well, this is a revolutionary thing. Well, you know, imagine that. And of course, there's no precedent. There's no there's no uh, uh, tradition. You see, "Well, what, how are they going to do this?" Well, they have to learn in the same way as the men did. I'm mean, quite sure Paul wouldn't have wanted the men to kick up a fuss uh, <laughs> you know in the classroom so the women are there they're to learn but they're to learn in the same way and in the same way Then he says I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man and here we come to the relationship between male and female I haven't got time to go into this in great detail today I have to keep it till next week yeah but there are two reasons for this one is creation and the other is sin Creation, he said the male was created first, the female afterwards. There a, there's an inbuilt relationship between man, male and female, which has to be respected. It's not a case of one being superior to the other, because of course if you look in Genesis, they're both created in the image and likeness of God, but they are different. And of course, the, you know, you could write the whole of human history in this way. How do you, how do you balance equality and difference? It's not easy. Then, of course, there's the question of sin. It was the woman who was deceived and not the man. Why? Well, we don't know, <laughs> really, why. Um, but I suspect it may be uh, that if Adam had sinned, you see, if Adam had been the one who, who had sinned, Eve would, would, would have been dragged along with Adam, whether she wanted to be or not. But because Eve was the one who transgressed first, that didn't necessarily involve Adam. But Adam, of course, did what his wife wanted. See, he was persuaded by her and therefore, of course, was just as guilty as she was. It's not a case of one being more than the other. And in most of the the, the references to this in the Bible... the the, the entail of sin, the the, the inheritance of sin, is through Adam. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is not letting the man off the hook, uh, as it were. Uh, uh, Not at all. But it's simply saying that the way it worked, you see, was this way. And this, uh, we have to understand, um, that uh, the man is weak in this way. You see men listen to women um, you't but I know the women won 't believe this, but actually it, it, it 's often true you know they do what the women want, even if it's just to keep them happy um, and, uh, and and their judgment is clouded by this very often you see and, and so this is what we see here and Paul is actually it 's not a criticism of women it 's a criticism of men as much as anyone else. you know that you, you have to realize that this is not the way it should be. But the woman, of course, is nevertheless protected and saved. It's not a problem. You see, he says through childbearing. I don't think this is just a question of having children, uh, bearing them, but also bringing them up. Because whatever we say, the influence of the mother on children is far greater than that of the father, always. Um, uh, you know every culture is the same uh, when you, you, you talk about the language you speak, you talk about your mother tongue, never your father tongue. you know uh, you might not even know what your father tongue was. Uh, I think back of my father i've no, i can 't remember him ever saying anything um, but the, but then, in a house full of seven women and me he didn 't get much chance uh, <laughs> you know but um, but, but you see what I mean? And this is vitally important because the church grows through the teaching of the next generation. And women bringing up children... See, our society has got so twisted in this that unless you make money, you don't matter, you don't count for anything. But actually bringing up children is vitally important and more important today than it's ever been. Because you simply cannot trust the peer group to do it for you. You know, you can't let your kids just go wandering around now. Who knows what's going to happen? You can't let leave your children in front of, uh, of a computer. Uh, without monitoring it. You know, anything's possible. So the the role of the parents, and particularly of the mother, because the mother is the one who sees, Uh, you know, the mother is the one who who feels it, who's actually closer to the children in this way, vitally important. And of course, those of when you grow up, I mean, I I can say this of myself, and I look back to my parents, it's my mother and her example that, that I think of first. I'm not saying I never think about my father, but my mother, you know, somehow or other, I'm more concerned about not shaming her than I am about my father. Because I guess I kind of figure, well, you know, dad probably did the same thing when he was young. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, <laughs> you know, you tend not to feel the same way. Um, but, but mother, no, because mother, you know, I don't, I don't want her to feel bad about me. Uh, and, uh, and we think this way, don't we? Our mothers are very very important to us and we need to stress this, we need to say this and we need to encourage the, uh, this in the church. Women bringing up children it's not a burden, it's not something you do in your spare time this is the laying the foundation for the next generation and if this is neglected, if this is ignored, then the church will suffer as a result. Because we won't have a generation of people who are brought up in the way that they should go. We won't have a generation um, which has this sense of shame, uh, in the sense that they don't want to uh, let let the mother down. You know, they they, they they want to show that yes, they have learned, they have they have appreciated this, they protect this, uh, and so on. And of course, Jesus and his mother, uh, you know, very important. It's his mother, far more important than Joseph. Um, and, and always has been, uh, you see, in, in this way. So that's how I would, uh, would look at this. Um, that all this sort of modern th- stuff about, you know, equality and, and, and discrimination and chauvinism and so on, this is not the way to read uh, a passage like that. We need to see it in the context of the time and realize that what Paul is doing here is honoring women, not suppressing them but honoring them and pointing out just how important their role is and always will be. And we'll leave it at that. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.